When Missourians go to cast their ballots next month, they'll have to decide on not one, not two, but three medical marijuana initiatives. It can be a confusing situation, especially when the proposals are so markedly different. So on this edition of Politically Speaking, Joe Manis and I break down the ins and outs of the three marijuana initiatives and talk about the latest court ruling involving Missouri's photo ID law. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Lufu's Alfa Romeo, offering test drives of the Alfa Romeo Giulia, the 2018 Motor Trend Car of the Year at Lufu's Alfa Romeo in Fairview Heights. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Colleague Joe Manis. Joe, if I feel a little uh, less than myself, it's because I've had a very strange illness this week where I've had a fever and then all my joints have hurt. And then I have feel like I have a cut under my tongue. But well, I managed to, to, to crawl my way to this microphone to do this podcast. Well, it sounds like election-itis. What happens to all of us when we drive ourselves in the ground as we're covering election stuff? Oh, and there's like three or four weeks to go. So um, today we're going to talk a lot about medical marijuana. Um, but we're going to start things out as we usually do on this Roundup podcast and talk about some of the, the news of the week. The big news, I think, came out of Jefferson City, where retired Judge uh, Richard Callahan ended up declaring portions of Missouri's photo identification law to be unlawful or unconstitutional. He didn't strike down the entire law, but, Joe, he struck down some key parts of the law, from my understanding. Yeah, basically, it it will make it easier for people who don't have um, a photo ID with their driver's license to show up at the polls and vote. That's that's basically the the, the bottom line. Um, although Missouri Secretary of State um, Jay Ashcroft has maintained for for over a year that people can just sign something that 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 it wasn't that strict to begin with. But I think the judge was contending that the way it's being sold to the public made it sound like it was more stricter than it was. So there were two things that Callahan did. First of all, I don't think that people need to sign that aforementioned statement anymore when they don't bring a government-issued photo ID. Right. Um, The other thing is that he ruled that the Secretary of State cannot advertise that a a government-issued photo ID is required anymore. Um, So, I mean, some even, even some Republicans have argued that Missouri's photo ID law is not as restrictive as other ones, given that you can still vote even if you don't have a photo ID. You just had to sign a statement. Well, basically, this was a deal struck, frankly, with former Governor Jay Nixon and some of the uh, Democrats in the General Assembly back when all this was resolved. And it was in some ways because this was during a debate over some other unrelated issues. So there were some deals struck with the um, state Senate at the time. So the bottom line was that the implementation bill, which was separate from the constitutional amendment that voters approved, um, the implementation bill was considered acceptable by many Democrats in the General Assembly who then said they wouldn't be filing suit. So it's sort of 
this is sort of an outgrowth of that. And, but it also means that uh, Callahan's ruling, while it's like like Ashcroft's already said he's going to appeal. Yes, and I was just going to say, um, he tweeted out yesterday, which was Thursday, we appreciate the quick work of the Attorney General's office, which filed an appeal of Judge Callahan's decision of the voter ID law last night and filed for an emergency stay to the ruling this morning. The judge's decision has injected mass confusion into the voting process just weeks before an important election. So it's still in flux, but again, as of now, if you don't bring a government-issued photo ID to the polls, you won't have to sign a statement that is was required in the, in the old law. Yeah, well, and you could show alternate identification. What the, one of the things the judge's ruling does, especially uh, his uh, cautions to the Secretary of State, is that there have been reports that some local election uh, officials in various jurisdictions have been telling people they had to have a photo ID or they've been turning him away. Um, this happened during the August primary even. So this in some ways is telling the Secretary of State's office to emphasize these local officials they can't be doing that. And B, the Missouri Supreme Court has a majority Democratic appointed judges for if, now, if for, for now, and until someone retires, and so the result is that, frankly, the Callahan's ruling I predict will stand. Yeah, and I've always I've always contended that re- which party appointed like a Supreme Court judge is not necessarily indicative how they'll rule on something. One of the interesting things about this lawsuit was it was brought by Priorities USA, which is a Democratic group, I think, out of Washington D.C. And I think that there had been some conjecture that this was kind of put forward now as opposed to 2017 when this law went into effect, kind of in conjunction with the fact that there's competitive elections now in in Missouri. I'm not saying that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but it would kind of signal that the only reason Democratic groups are interested in doing stuff in Missouri is if it happens to coincide with a with a major election. Not- well, well, part of it, though, I speculate, is also just to get the public, especially a Democratic base, paying attention to v- photo voter ID issues and various voter ID issues and various voter suppression allegations in a number of states. I mean, we're hearing about stuff in Georgia, stuff in Ohio, elsewhere. And many of those debates have been going on for months, but now they're attracting headlines. So I think in some ways this um, whole issue in Missouri sort of globs onto that. Yes, absolutely. Um, Switching gears a little bit more locally, and we're actually going to be looking into future elections past 2018 for a moment. Um, I spoke with State Representative Bruce Franks yesterday when he informed me that 2019-2020 will be his last term in the Missouri House because he has decided that he is going to run for the 5th Senatorial District seat, which takes in portion of St. Louis City. I'm shocked. It, it's not really that shocking, but I I'm think, being sarcastic. But I think the reason I'm just mentioning it on this this roundup show is Bruce Franks obviously attracted a lot of attention in 2016 when, after a, a redo election, he won a state house seat. He obviously right. has a pretty big following. He has some detractors, as as most politicians in St. Louis do. But he explained this way of why he was deciding not to run for the house again and instead putting his sights on the Senate. The fact that I saw how both chambers work, 
And I was able to work a lot on the Senate side the last couple of years and build some relationships over there, uh, as well as um, just working with the senator to pass legislation, put money into the budget, kill bad bills, um, bipartisanship. And so I saw how much power we actually have over there and the amount of work that I could get done over there as opposed to the House um, for the entire community. Um, that's what we're supposed to be doing. So, and it's the prime opportunity. Um, everybody's supporting it. So I felt like the people will always choose my trajectory, and this is the trajectory that they chose. So just for a little context, Senator Jamila Nasheed, who holds the 5th District seat, is termed out after 2020. She's running for the Board of Aldermen President in St. Louis next year. Yeah, so, early next year. So there is a possibility that this seat could become vacant before you know 2020. Um, but I, from talking with a lot of people, this would be an open seat that's very Democratic, that I don't think Representative Franks would be the only candidate, but he certainly has a lot of I would say he's a pretty strong candidate to run in that primary. Well, Nasheed, I mean, I've talked to her several times, um, and she's telegraphed for more than a year that she expected Bruce Franks to run for her seat if she either gets elected to the Board of Aldermen president or when she's termed. Um, She wasn't saying, you know, who she might back or not, but she made clear that she expected him to run. In turning to somebody who has decided not to run for something, it broke on Thursday that 24th Ward Alderman Scott Ogilvie is not going to be running for a third term in 2019. He represents kind of a portion of southwest central St. Louis City, so like the Dogtown area, um, parts that are kind of close to the St. Louis Zoo. I think actually part of my running path on Clayton Road is is, is in his ward. And I don't think we would usually be talking about older men or older women not running again if it wasn't for a portion of uh, his rationale that I'm going to read verbatim. I also want to point to what needs to be changed about government in the St. Louis region, everything, everything. Government in the region needs to be completely remade from the ground up. It does not work in St. Louis City. It does not work in poorer areas of St. Louis County. We accept that rich people get excellent services because they wall themselves into suburban enclaves and avoid engaging with the rest of the region. And we accept that poor people will have poor services because they are poor. We accept that the middle class will endure a series of choices driven by anxiety and fear rather than love and optimism. And I was struck by this because Ogilvy has, I think, been able to become more and more successful over time of implementing some of his ideas in the Board of Aldermen. When he when he was elected as an independent, I think in 2011, he was kind of this outlier renegade figure. And the fact that he's expressing that frustration maybe is a signal that things are, are very amiss in St. Louis government. What do you think, Joe? Well, I think he has been what one would call the conscience in the Board of Aldermen because he did voice things that some other people are thinking, and he did voice them in a very uh, coherent manner. I mean, he's also reflecting the fact that there is going to be change in the Board of Aldermen because of a uh, of a measure that passed several years ago. But the bottom line is the Board of Aldermen is going to be reduced. 
yeah. as far as the number. And he supported that, by the way. Right. But the point is, is that there was going to be change and, he, and that was going to affect who's in and who's out anyway. And his departure probably makes it a little easier for somebody else on the board who wants to stay on to stay on. But the point is, the Board of Aldermen is about to go under, undergo a period of an upheaval. And uh, so his departure is part of that. But he does touch on a lot of regional stuff and does sort of make the point, uh, without saying it, that the region has a lot of regional problems that are not dealt with regionally. They're dealt with in enclaves, St. Louis County, separate, St. Louis City, separate, little towns, Clayton, Webster Groves, wherever, separate, uh, St. Charles, separate. The point is that there's all these silos, but there many of them are dealing with the same issues. And I will just say, not to overly personalize this that much, since I live very close to the 24th Ward, um, the fact remains that if you live on the St. Louis County side of that area, and if you live at the St. Louis City side of that area, and you have a child with special needs, the person on the city is going to get much less resources for their children than the people in the county. It's frankly the reason I live in St. Louis County now. And if St. Louis City and St. Louis County leaders can't even figure out that disparity, then I wonder if he's really going to be able to deal with kind of the, the governmental things that he focuses on. I mean, can't even get resources for special needs kids in the city. How are you going to merge the city and the county into one government? Well, it's because the people don't Remember that the educational systems in the county and in the region and in the state are technically separate from other governmental entities. They and are while separate. The, but and while think, governmental ent- entities can say stuff, the Board of Aldermen can do nothing about the St. Louis public schools. They can do nothing about what services are offered. The special school district, which is in the county, is actually unusual in the whole country. And in fact, many um, other parts of the country have dismantled them. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying it is. So the point being that uh, the education problems in the region are very complicated. And for the most part, governmental entities like the Board of Aldermen and the county council have chosen and because they have no power to not say much about it. And now it's time for Politically Speaking's election analysis, where we break down what will be on your ballot on November 6th. So, Joe, now we're going to talk about a topic that I've been waiting for for many weeks to talk about, medical marijuana in Missouri, because this situation is so confusing, not only to a reporter like myself, but probably to the average voters. There's not one medical marijuana initiative. There are three. Three. And I think that we just got to start off with a basic question is what happens if all three of these medical marijuana initiatives pass? I think that there has been some explanation about that. And there is a process laid out in the Constitution. But I'm getting a sense that it's not really a clear picture. Well, there likely could be some legal fights. But to simplify it, The way the Constitution now reads, as far as the two proposed constitutional amendments, which are Amendment 2 and Amendment 3, the one that gets the most votes, should both of them pass, will be the one that goes into effect. And there are major, big differences between Amendment 2 and Amendment 3, and I'll get into that in a minute. The third proposal is Proposition C, which is actually a change in state law, so it's a little lower standard. Proposition C, they have not been campaigning as much, in part because many of the backers of Proposition C 
are somewhat supportive of Amendment 2. Uh, One of the spokesmen for some of the organizers told me that the reason they pushed for Proposition C was that they didn't think the people pushing Amendment 2 were going to get enough signatures to get on the ballot. In fact, that spokesperson, Mark Habis, um, said this to you, I think, a few days ago. I think new approach and I think Missourians for Patient Care are working towards the same agenda, and that is getting cannabis accessible as soon as possible in the state of Missouri. And Habis is a spokesperson for Proposition C, and New Approach Missouri is kind of the name that's given to Amendment 2. So let's start off with Amendment 2. What would it do? And when we ask what it does, it basically asks, what's the tax going to be? How would, uh, you know, marijuana dispensaries be set up? And where would the money go? So that let, let's let's just lay that out for Amendment Two. Okay, first I want to preface this that Amendment Two has raised by far the most money. So Amendment and Amendment Two has the broadest uh, list of backers. Okay, so Amendment Two, which would allow marijuana for medicinal use. Now, it's not just the marijuana that you smoke. I mean, which is what people my age, ch- children of the '60s, might think about. But it's really. Um, uh, there's tablets, there's liquids, there's tinctures, there are various little aspects of cam- cannabis. So it's a broad range of products. Would that include edibles? Yes. So like marijuana baked into candy or well, a brownie or something yeah, like well, that? Yeah, well, in many cases, they're chewables. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so um, what this does is it would it would set up regulations and a licensing certification process for producing marijuana and marijuana facilities. The state would run it, in effect. Okay. Um, it would rec- Doctors would be able to uh, certify that, that people uh, should be allowed to use it. Yeah. So you just can't for, for certain diseases. So it doesn't mean that you can just say, oh, I feel like I need this for medicinal reasons. No, you got to get a doctor involved. Now, they impose a 4% tax on the retail sale of all of these products. The funds from the, from the taxes on these products would be, go, would be earmarked for military veterans through the Veterans Commission and also to, for the administration of the program. Now, the proposal is estimated to generate roughly $18 million a year in taxes and fees. Uh, for, again, to operate the program and for veterans programs, and $6 million for local governments. Right. And one of the things that I remember, because I I talked with uh, the New Approach people, just as you did, why did they choose veterans programs? Like, the cynic in me thinks that they chose veterans programs because that may make it easier to pass because, you know, they're saying vote for medical marijuana, the money will go to help veterans, and people would be like, oh, that's a great cause. But I could also argue that, you know. There also is a medical reason. Aside from the obvious um, public sympathy for, for veterans, in fact, uh, military veterans, especially those who've served in war zones, um, often, you know, have PTSD and other issues when they come back. And there have been some studies that show that um, Marijuana products can be particularly helpful to them. They've seen that in some other states. So that's one of the reasons they single it out for them. But obviously, it's a good political angle as well. Here's Jack Cardetti, who has become the spokesperson for New Approach Missouri, explaining a little bit about who is supporting it. Our group is a true coalition of veterans, 
patients and healthcare providers with one simple goal, and that's to make Missouri the 31st state that allows doctors, state licensed physicians, to recommend medical marijuana to patients with serious and debilitating illnesses. So let's talk about Proposition C next, because I think it's pretty, it's reasonably similar to New Approach Missouri, although there's some key differences to it. I would like to go to that one before Amendment 3, which is very different from both of them. So what would Proposition C do if it ends up being the only thing that passes out of these three? Okay, now Proposition C, again, they also removed the state prohibitions on personal use and possession of, of cannabis, which is not part of Amendment 2. So Proposition C, basically, if you have it on you, you wouldn't be arrested. Uh, as long as they have a written certification by a physician who treats the patient. So in other words, if you have a certification from the patient, I mean from a doctor, and um, you have uh, cannabis on you, you're okay. Now it also removes state prohibitions on the growth, possession, production, and sale of medical marijuana by licensed and regulated facilities. Now it it imposes a 2% tax, so it's only half the amount. And the money from this, again, some of it would go for veteran services, some would go for drug treatment, some would go for early childhood education and for public safety in cities with um, medical marijuana facilities. Now, of course, the costs and the amount of revenue that would be um, estimated to be collected is lower than from uh, Amendment 2. They're estimating roughly that they would uh, raise about $10 million a year. Now, I'm simplifying this for a couple of reasons. First, as you just played the um, audio from uh, Mark Habas, the Proposition C people, most of them support Amendment 2 or are sympathetic to it. So far, they have done virtually no campaigning. It's unclear how much they were going to do. Now, marijuana supporters, one of the reasons they're more leery of Proposition C is only because, as Missouri's past has shown, a proposition that passes can be changed by the General Assembly at will. And if you think a number of things, including concealed weapons and um, dog, uh, the dog industry in the state, the dog breeding industry in the state, um, that's just a couple examples well, of well, where I'm, voters I'm, have passed one thing and the General Assembly has then changed it. I'm glad it. that you mentioned that, Joe, because I actually asked House Speaker Todd Richardson about this earlier this year. Because the legislature was considering passing a medical marijuana program, and it actually passed the House. This is what the Poplar Bluff Republican had to say about this issue. I will say that there has been a dramatic change in the conversation surrounding this issue, even in the seven years that I've been in the legislature. If you told me when I'd walked in the door that you'd have as many conservative Republicans supporting some type of, of legalization of marijuana, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, that being said, I, I believe the legislature is the best place to, to tackle this issue. Um, as you've seen in other states that have tackled the issue, the issues surrounding enforcement, um, surrounding who, who it's going to be made available to or who it's legal for, uh, are complex and they change. And so the ability for the legislature to come in to, to do the hard work, to craft a, uh, a good piece of legislation, and then to have the ability to update that legislation as, as circumstances arise, I think are really important here. So, and I've talked to Jack Cardetti about this. I think that he says that if Amendment 2 ends up passing, there 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 is language that allows like the Department of Health, I think, yes. to, to make updates. But 
it does seem like Speaker Richardson has a point that putting medical marijuana in the Constitution, which can only be changed by another constitutional amendment, really makes it difficult for the legislature to respond to problems with the program. What do you what do you what Yeah, you well, about I think that? that's true. But frankly, you've run across this with a number of issues the past 20 years where the General Assembly putters around. I mean, no offense, but they kind of putter around on something. You can think campaign finance reform. You can think all sorts of different things. And the only reason they end up taking action in some cases is because voters approve something. And in the case of propositions, they've often changed it. In the case of the, the dog breeding uh, proposal, proposal that passed the uh, voters in 2010. They really overhauled it, weakened it. So you've got many proponents of various issues since then who've decided that a constitutional amendment is the way to go. But as you point out rightly, it means that it's much more difficult to change once it's in the Constitution. I mean, just look at the other amendment to dealing with campaign finances, which we've talked about on this show ad nauseum. I mean, there are so many loopholes that have been exposed over the last two years that could hypothetically be p- fixed with legislation, but may need to be fixed in the Constitution. Well, that's why stem cell uh, per- protections are in the Constitution. When they passed that in 2006, because uh, the bankers were pretty disturbed because... At that point, it was only a few years after the General Assembly had overridden the voters regarding concealed weapons. So let's talk about Amendment 3, because I've read about this, and I, I think that this one is the, the proposal that's actually being attacked by supporters of Amendment 2 and Proposition yes. C. Explain what it does. Okay. Amendment 3, which is very different— Okay, it does allow it for medicinal purposes, and it does set up regulations and licensing, and it does uh, require a doctor certification. But what it does is it it proposes a much higher tax, a 15% tax. And what that money would do would set up a state research institution to conduct research with the idea of curing cancer. Now, the opponents, uh, which are the Amendment 2 and the proposition, are saying, wait a minute— we already have nationally a prominent cancer research facilities in St. Louis and uh, Columbia and Kansas City. Now, the main backer of this proposal, uh, Brad Bradshaw, who's a physician and a doctor, um, feels strongly that's not, that's not enough. Well, first of all, you have hypotheticals wrong. Um, those places are not finding cures for cancer. I've worked with every one of those places. I've worked with uh, Barnes Jewish, Washington Hospital, uh, Washington. Uh, University. I've worked at the University of Columbia, and I've just last less than a week ago I was working with Kansas University, and I've uh, been talking with people at UMKC. You're, that's absolutely false. There's no real cancer research to find cures at any of those facilities. Uh, I'm talking about actually finding cures for cancer and other incurable diseases, including early detection tests, um, which would reduce the suffering from cancer, would help us catch cancer while it's still curable. Anybody that's telling you those places already exist is totally naive or just completely ignorant. So the other thing, beyond just the fact that it has a high tax, is that Bradshaw himself would be fairly involved with this program if it passes. Yes, he would actually oversee its creation and have a pretty major role at the beginning. Now, he says that would just be temporary and that it's not a permanent thing. The uh, backers of the other two proposers are saying, no, this is a way for Bradshaw to uh, try to enrich himself, which he vehemently denies. Now, he does not have uh, any major 
backers, I mean, well-known backers, and he put up most of the money himself. He estimated that um, he put up well over a million dollars to collect the signatures to get this on the ballot. He says he does have more backers than his critics um, contend. But this is what's fascinating to me. The, the debate is between two proposals against another one. There's hardly anybody outside who's saying we shouldn't approve any of these. I want to talk about the taxation aspect of this because Amendment 2 is attacking Amendment 3 for having a, a high 15% tax. Right. I, I, okay. I've always thought that if marijuana was legalized, especially for recreational use, having a high tax on it would actually be a good thing because, A, it could be a disincentive for people to use it because while there are benefits to using marijuana. Using it recreationally, there are a whole lot of negatives well, to it as well. Well, none of these legalize it yes. for recreational. Yes. I want to but, make that but clear. But the point is, you know, Missouri does have some financial woes, and this could be a potentially a, a funding source for a lot of different things. What what's, what's the problem with having a relatively high tax on this? Is it just because this is for medicinal use and you don't want to put too high of a burden on patients, basically? Yeah, I think it's that. And it's also the belief that they don't need to have that high of a tax, which would be like the highest, one of the highest in the country, um, because the, the money would be used for facilities which the critics say are not needed, as I just, just uh, mentioned, that it's really where, where they're saying their um, proposed tax would be for specific programs. Now, I think in some ways, this whole medicinal discussion, I think assuming that something passes, and frankly, a lot of people think at least one of these may pass, will be to see how it goes, to see if they run into a lot of problems with it. I mean, other states, they've had some success, but they've had some problems with their own proposals. I think in some ways, they want to see where this goes before they try to expand it uh, to make marijuana even more... um, accessible to the public. And frankly, as I said, I'm a child of the 60s, and I actually, in a speech class when I was a senior in college, uh, did a, a, a speech counterpoint, you know, on on a marijuana, why it should be legal or why it should not, and comparing it to alcohol. So, But the reason I'm mentioning that is that was well over almost 45 years ago. So, this issue has been going on for a long time. The, the only other thing I want to talk about is the political dynamics. I think that there has been a false assumption among people that this is a democratic turnout mechanism, when in actuality, I think that, as Speaker Richardson said, I think legalizing marijuana, both for medicinal purposes and, frankly, recreationally, has bipartisan support now. So I don't really see this as turning out a lot of Democratic voters as, say, the minimum wage may, or to some extent, clean Missouri may. What's your what's your thought on that? Well, I think what they're talking about is, well, it does have broader support, especially the idea of medicinal use across the board. I think that the belief is that it will attract more, once they start campaigning, they will attract more younger voters to the polls who have a notorious record of not showing up. I mean, the record for uh, younger people is generally an off year elections, it's under 30 percent. And people 55 and over, it's like twice that. But but why would younger voters care about marijuana only being legalized for medicinal use if they're not going to be able to utilize it unless they're sick? Well, they may not be paying attention to all this. It's just the idea of being to cast the first vote to legalize pot, as they see it. In Missouri. In Missouri. 
And so the point is, many think that uh, younger people, when they do vote, that they tend to favor Democrats. So while it's not necessarily the reason this is on the ballot, there are some in both parties who privately think that if this attracts more younger people to the polls, uh, Democratic candidates could benefit. Well, that's all the time we have for today. But before we say our goodbyes, I asked people on Twitter, what should be Politically Speaking's outro music for this afternoon? The four choices were Down by 311, Just Got Paid by NSYNC, a, a very favorite of my son, Brandon Todd Rosenbaum, Back Here by B.B. Mack, which was actually my choice but got last place. The song that ended up winning, Joe, The Next Episode by Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, which features the late Nate Dogg saying at the very end, smoke weed every day. To- total coincidence that that happened to win on the show we're talking about marijuana. <laughs> I didn't you get to look at it. I didn't even say the okay, show is about okay. marijuana. Okay. People just love it. Jay Rosenbaum, follow me on Twitter. Uh, Joe Manis, that's J M A N N I E S. And here is the classic song by Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, the next episode.